Welcome to Rheumatology Republic. I'm Holly Payne. Last year, a group of rheumatologists decided to create the first set of living guidelines for rheumatoid arthritis in Australia. Often, clinical guidelines are out of date by the time they are published because they take so long to put together. Living guidelines look to incorporate all the latest knowledge in the field rapidly and continuously. This episode, I'm speaking with Rheumatology Republic board member and rheumatologist Dr. Sam Whittle from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and the University of Adelaide. So we're here to chat about the living guidelines for RA. So a big question is, what's the difference between a living guideline and a traditional clinical guideline? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, and so living guidelines are a relatively a relatively new concept, although we, we certainly haven't invented them, but we are, we are trying to uh, evolve them. Um, essentially, a traditional guideline um, will look at a, a series of recommendations on a particular topic and will develop them all at once based on a, a review of the literature that's done all over a, a relatively um, short period of time. Uh, and then a, a series of recommendations we publish together, often in a, a hard copy format or a, a sort of PDF format online. And then that exists as the, as the guideline for, for a period of time until, until it's decided to update the entire guideline. And that's been the traditional way of doing things, but it, it leads to some inefficiencies in that you decide to wait many years, say, you know, 10 years before you update it, then many of the recommendations inside that guideline will be out of date by the time they're, they're, uh, the new edition is published. And so that that means that uh, guideline users are left with um, out-of-date recommendations that are mm. potentially not useful or harmful. Um, but if you decide to update your guideline really frequently, you know, every year or every two years, then there's a strong possibility that uh, that the majority of your recommendations in the guideline won't, won't have actually uh, had any change in their evidence base over that period mm. of time. So you can go to the trouble of doing an entire expensive and difficult uh, guideline development process for relatively little change. So the, the key innovation in a living guideline is that each individual recommendation within, within a guideline, and there may be some guidelines have 10, some have 20, some have 30 individual recommendations within them. Each individual one is updated in near real time. So what we do is we, um, for each recommendation that we make, uh, we, we set in train uh, a literature surveillance process. Uh, and then if we see a change in the literature for that particular recommendation that may change uh, the, the way that recommendation is worded or its strength, then, um, then the guideline panel is reconvened, the literature is looked at again, and a new recommendation is published as soon as possible. So that each individual recommendation is published every time there's a change in the literature, rather than the, the standard mm. method, which is just to do it sort of ad hoc on a five or 10 yearly basis. I was also wondering when or where we've seen other living guidelines put in place. I understand that COVID is something with a living guideline, right? That's right. So the Australian COVID guidelines are a living guideline and they've been a good uh, demonstration case of how this uh, how the process works and, and also its value when there's a rapidly changing literature um, base. So uh, COVID's been the, the, the ideal sort of test case for this speak, uh, because... Uh, you know, our knowledge around COVID is changing so rapidly and it's, it's imperative that, that the evidence is synthesised as quickly as possible and that recommendations are made 
for people um, uh, as soon as there's been a change. So the, the Australian COVID guidelines um, are very comprehensive. Uh, they, I believe that they are updating their literature searches on a weekly basis um, through, throughout the pandemic, which is uh, an incredibly fast um, turnaround time. We, uh, most, most living evidence will, will be doing a literature surveillance either on a monthly or three monthly basis. So it's, um, so it's semi-continuous, uh, but yes, the COVID guideline, I believe have been doing weekly, weekly uh, literature searches and then they have been updating as, as necessary through that. So, um, so that's been an, an excellent test case. And there, and there are a number of other uh, Australian uh, guidelines that are currently in living format. So the Oak guidelines, uh, there are some living uh, diabetes guidelines as well. Uh, amongst mm. others, so Australia's really been at the forefront of this, and and we uh, we believe that our Australian um, guideline for inflammatory arthritis is is the only living guideline for musculoskeletal or for rheumatology uh, in the world at the moment. Yeah, and where are we up to with the development of those RA guidelines in Australia? <laughs> So they're up and running. Uh, we the, the process uh, of developing this has been going on for the last two or three years, but we've now started to publish our recommendations. And because it's in uh, in living mode, the other advantage of that is that we you can do it. You can develop it one recommendation at a time, which is which means that um, we can continue to add to our our um, corpus of recommendations as. Uh, priorities demand and as resources allow. So at the moment, uh, as of today, we have got um, seven uh, recommendations in in, um, in our guideline. Uh, the seventh uh, was just uh, published uh, about an hour ago, uh, and that is a recommendation on, on the use of, uh, uh, that's for COVID uh, vaccination for people with autoimmune inflammatory rheumatic diseases on immunomodulatory uh, medications. Um, and so all of these, uh, so this is an, uh, uh, we are planning for this to be an NHMRC endorsed guideline. And so um, uh, we've been following that process as well. And, and so these are all of the recommendations that we have at the moment are, are essentially provisional recommendations pending NHMRC approval. But, uh, but we, that process is going to be an ongoing process and we expect uh, or we anticipate approval from NHMRC over the course of this year. Um, and we will continue to keep adding recommendations uh, over the next several months um, on a variety of different topics. Great. And what is the HNMRC? So the NHNMRC is the Natural National Health and Medical Research Council. So they're the peak body um, that um, uh, oversees medical research in Australia uh, and also oversees guideline uh, uh, development. So um, an NHMRC endorsed guideline is considered to be the, the, the most trustworthy form of uh, guideline in, in the Australian guideline context. Oh, cool. So yeah, really going for that gold standard. And what yep. makes RA a good candidate for these living guidelines? Well, it's a good question. And in fact, we started uh, making this an RA guideline simply because Really, rheumatoid arthritis is the is the sort of bread and butter fundamental disease, uh, inflammatory disease in in rheumatology, um, and there's a there's a huge um, 
evidence base and an evolving evidence base. But in fact, we've expanded it. Since we first registered it as a guideline, we've expanded it from rheumatoid arthritis to inflammatory arthritis. So we've actually got uh, recommendations now for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and uh, axial spondyloarthritis. So we're, we're, our scope at the moment is, the, is uh, pharmacotherapy of, uh, of uh, inflammatory arthritis. What is it about the nature of inflammatory diseases then that would lend particularly well to living guidelines as opposed to traditional ones? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that you could, you could make a strong argument that the living approach to guidelines is, is valid for, uh, for many areas of, of uh, rheumatology in particular and, and medicine in general. Uh, but certainly across all the forms of inflammatory arthritis, we're continuing to see a number of areas where there's uncertainty in the literature, particularly uh, around the, the choice of disease-modifying drugs um, or other aspects of pharmacotherapy. Um, and, and so having, um, having uncertainty about the best options is, uh, makes, uh, makes it a fertile topic for, for living recommendations. And the other, the other thing that you need for a living recommendation is an evolving uh, evidence base. So if no one's doing any research, there's no point in having a living recommendation. But we're seeing a continued expansion of the, of the evidence base across all the forms of inflammatory arthritis. We've seen over the last uh, 20 years now um, the advent of the biological and targeted synthetic DMARD. So we've seen a huge expansion in the number of pharmacological options available for the treatment of these diseases. And so that means that it's really a, a, um, the, the perfect theatre for, uh, for a living guideline. Yeah, I, I was actually interested to know about the living guidelines for the down titration of biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs in rheumatoid mm -hmm. arthritis. What's the gist of that? So one of the processes that we um, have been through in, in developing this, this guideline is to um, prioritise the questions that the clinicians really want answered. Um, and that, um, so we, we survey um, last year of members of the Australian Rheumatology Association, asking them to nominate the, the questions that they felt were most important to be tackled in an Australian guideline. And then we asked them to rank those. So we ended up with a uh, ranking of uh, 34 different uh, recommendation topics. And one of the ones that came out very near the top was, um, was how to taper um, uh, DMARTs, particular, particularly biological and targeted synthetic DMARTs. So in the end, that was the, that was the topic that we decided to go with first. Um, and, it, and um, it's really been a perfect way to, to start because it's, this is an area where there's a lot of uncertainty, where new literature is constantly evolving. Um, and it's, it's an area of medicine that's, that is kind of new to rheumatology because we've, up until relatively recently, our main goal was to find effective therapies for the treatment of inflammatory arthritis. And, and with, with the changes in, in, in treatment that have occurred in rheumatology in the last 20 or 25 years, uh, we've now got an incredibly effective armamentarium. And so it's, there's this new question now, what do you do when you've treated someone really, really, really well? Is it okay to then start to reduce um, the number of medications that the, that, uh, the individual is taking? And, and so increasingly that's been an area of interest for rheumatologists. So that's why that came, was very high in the priority list. And that's why we ended up making 
recommendations around tapering or discontinuation of um, DMARDs, our first series of recommendations. And so we've got, uh, we've got three recommendations on dose reduction or discontinuation of DMARDs, one for rheumatoid arthritis, one for axial spondyloarthritis and one for psoriatic arthritis. Um, and interestingly enough, they are slightly different uh, recommendations from each other. That, that's interesting as well. So how do you go about compiling the guidelines and who's involved with that process? Mm. It's, um, it's quite a complicated process behind the scenes, but essentially what we do is we, uh, the first and most important step is to uh, accumulate all of the existing evidence. So we, uh, we essentially do a systematic review of all of the evidence on that question. And then that forms the initial evidence base. And then we do continued searches to see if we need to supplement that evidence base every month. But for the initial recommendation, we do an initial systematic review of the evidence. We tabulate all that evidence. Then we've put together a guideline panel and the guideline panel meets. And we've, thanks to COVID, we've, we've all become very proficient at meeting via Zoom. So that's actually been very efficient. We have a meeting which is facilitated by an expert in the process. And we, we follow a process called the grade process, which is really a very highly structured way of making an evidence-based recommendation. And so the evidence is presented to the guideline panel. We then have a panel meeting, which goes through the entire grade recommendation development process. And at the end of that, we end up with a recommendation. We then grade the strength of the recommendation. We present all of the evidence. We have a framework for making the decision, which is, which is written out explicitly. We have a rationale that we publish, and we also have a series of practical information points. And it's all contained on the, the web app, which hosts the guideline. Uh, app is called Magic App, and it's a really great interactive way of um, accessing guideline recommendations, which, which is really modern, can be done at the point of care, all you need is a web browser, and you can click through from a very simple level, that's just the recommendation, all the way through to a very in-depth analysis of all of the rationale underlies the, uh, underlies the recommendation, links to all of the underlying evidence and the evidence tables. So it's, it's, it's really comprehensive uh, under the hood. Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect of it, very modern and that I suspect would be a pretty good advantage for rheumatologists using those. Um, what would the other advantages be? Well I think one of the big challenges in guideline development is that there we know that there are a vast number of guidelines available to, to users and it can it's really hard when you're actually at, at the point of care for the clinician and the consumer to know which guideline they ought to access how up to date those guidelines are, how to access them, and how to find the, the questions that are relevant to the healthcare decision that they're trying to make. So we're really interested in trying to work out how to streamline that for users of guidelines. So our goal is to make the best guideline available for rheumatology, the most up to date guideline available so that uh, our users can be confident that all of the recommendations they're looking at are completely up to date. And then we want it to be accessible at the point of care and usable. So the beauty of having a, a web app uh, is that uh, anyone with an internet connection can access them. Uh, they're publicly available. So if anyone wants to look at our guidelines, they just need to go to mskguidelines.org and it will magically appear. And one of the things I like to develop further uh, as we go along is, is finding ways of integrating it better 
into people's daily practice. So integrating these recommendations into practice software or making it even easier for people to, to find their recommendations, to tailor them to the particular question they're trying to answer and to actually use them in the real world. And so some of our ongoing work will be around implementing these guidelines and making sure that they're actually not only user-friendly, but are actually used in the real world. Great. Uh, Dr. Whittle, thank you. That's my pleasure.